not sure if you've heard of Siddharth Kara before, but there is a very good chance that you will hear of his name. In the coming weeks and months, he was just on the Joe Rogan podcast talking about cobalt and the inhuman working conditions in the Congo. And the reason I say you might hear of him is, well, first of all, it was on the Joe Rogan podcast, which is a huge podcast. Second of all, Joe Rogan was very disturbed by it. And third, the way I heard about it was through another podcast, which was saying you have to hear the Joe Rogan podcast with Siddharth Kara. And what I was listening to was not typical, you know, it had nothing to do with mining or Joe Rogan or anything. It's more of a financial podcast. So isn't that interesting? Hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli, and I wish you a happy new year. I hope you are settling in nicely here. On the 3rd of January, we are starting the new year here, the business new year. In Germany, they start the day before. They actually, they don't take that extra day, hilariously, for us, not for them. Uh, taking a quick look at this article, so this is Sports Manor. And the quote of the headline, one of the most disturbing and important conversations I've ever had, end quote, Joe Rogan loses his mind over inhuman working conditions in the Congo. So I listened to this show, and yeah, like the mining industry, I mean, it's kind of funny. I mean, we have Phil Baker of Hecla as the future content, and he's basically saying it's never been better, at least, you know, from his perspective, in running a silver company in North America. From an ESG perspective, you know, we've been doing this for years. The mining industry is basically in great shape, at least from what I understood of the interview. And then you see this, you know, Joe Rogan, Siddharth Kara podcast. And Kara has this new book called Cobalt Red. And I mean, it just sounds like Blood Diamonds Part 2. All to say, I think the mining industry is going to be under siege here. This is going around, and there was some pretty shocking video. I mean, you see a sea of humanity. I think that's how Siddharth Kara put it, uh, in the Congo. And it's interesting. I mean, I want to, maybe I'll get back on our ESG expert in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Remember Christelle Kupa from Uhusiano Capital? Well, I think she's going to be, you know, more in demand as this thing hits because Again, that is not a small podcast. So pretty interesting way to start the year, if you ask me. Yeah, a big red alert over here. Let me just show you the article, though, because there are a lot of claims that I found I just wasn't sure because he was basically saying there is no clean cobalt. Uh, he was saying that there is a cover-up from you know, the likes of Apple and Tesla and any any and every, you know, technology company that uses this cobalt, which is used in phones and in batteries. And so let's just take a quick look at this article from Sports Manor, which summed it up nicely. On episode 1914 of his world-famous podcast, Joe Rogan had Siddharth Kara as his guest. Kara was there to promote his new book titled Cobalt Red. The book dives into the disturbing stories of what goes on in cobalt mines in Congo. As per the American author, almost 72% of cobalt supplies on Earth come from the southeastern province of the African country. However, the author claimed that people are forced to work in the mines for a mere $1 a day. Not just that, Kara also alleged that almost 15,000 artisanal miners work in the cobalt mines 
without any sort of protection. He was saying a lot of them are in flip-flops. And here's a quote. This is Siddharth Kara. Has one CEO of any of these companies ever stepped foot at the bottom of their own supply chain to see for themselves what's happening there? I mean, why is it that I had to go? I'm not running a tech company. I'm not running an EV company. Yet I felt somehow responsible for what's happening down there. How come they don't feel responsible enough to take a trip, one trip on their private jet down there to see for themselves? Oh, wait a minute. There are thousands of people in this industrial mine working in like ancient old world miserable conditions. Rogan called it, quote, one of the most disturbing and important conversations I've ever had. Cobalt is in every smartphone and most battery powered technology and the mining of it in the Congo takes place under the most inhumane conditions imaginable. So that is one report. And this is the New York Post here. Siddharth Kara, author of Cobalt Red, How the Blood of the Congo Powers Our Lives, told podcast host Joe Rogan that there's no such thing as, quote, clean cobalt. Quote, that's all marketing, end quote, Kara said. Kara told Rogan that the level of suffering of the Congolese people working in cobalt mines was astounding. When asked by Rogan if there was any cobalt mine in the Congo that did not rely on child labor or slavery, the Harvard visiting professor told him there were none. Quote, I have never seen one and I've been to almost all the major industrial cobalt mines in the country, Kara said. So as you can see, this is in the New York Post now. So the mining industry, whether they realize it or not, has a major problem on its hands. That is my take over here at the Northern Miner Podcast. You know, all this work of ESG and everything, frankly, could be thrown right out the window if this is not addressed and if the mining industry is seen as not trying to get down to the bottom of it. Because the allegations are shocking. So the best thing to do when you are confronted with shocking allegations is to deal with them. So we'll see how the reaction is also from the tech companies. I mean, I think Apple is going to be forced to respond to this. This is going out there in a big way. I think Tesla is going to be forced to respond. So anyways, we have started 2023 with a big boom. And looking at the markets here, I mean, gold has the headline right here on CNBC. It is at $1,854.90 per ounce. So we were discussing last episode how metals were looking buoyant. Silver at $24.62, copper at $3.84. So again, looking quite buoyant, looking at Brent crude here, $84.72. And looking at bonds, the U.S. 10-year is at 3.73%. So that is about 0.1% lower than last week. So a little lower than last week, but still almost at 4% here. The U.K. 10-year is at 3.6%. So again, like I would say from a policymaker perspective, it is uncomfortably close to 4% of the U.K. 10-year. And so... Nothing slowing down over here. European stock market's having a good day, but kind of a bit of an ominous feel out there. Let's see how the markets turn out this week. Again, Santa Claus rally technically is the last five trading days of the year and the first two trading days. So it's interesting. I mean, another person who made a huge deal about the first three trading days of the year was James Dines. Because I guess in Wall Street, there is a, I guess this is seen in certain areas of Wall Street as 
really having a fairly good prediction indicator for the year. And so let's see how things do out here. U.S. markets, how are they doing? They opened higher, but now they are down 0.2%. So nothing special out there. The VIX at 23.12. Coming up this quarter, we have the Global Mining Symposium on February 22nd and 23rd. So that is a month and a half away. And it includes Luca Giocavazzi, Chief Executive Officer of Wailu Metals, which has been in the news, and Chris Kennedy, Director of Water at Tech Resources. So that should be a wonderful event. Register your interest at events.northernminer.com. And other than that, like I was telling you, we have Phil Baker, Hecla CEO, and he was interviewed by Andrew Cheadle at the Global Mining Symposium. Of course, Andrew Cheadle has done many events with the Northern Miner in the past, and he is the Chief Operating Officer and Director at TRX Gold Corporation. So that is all coming up in a rock'em sock'em beginning to the year. And with that, let's turn to our news stories and see what else is going on out there. Like last week, we saw some pretty astonishing news. And so let's see if we have an update on that. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. Find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts. And wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, LME ends chaotic year with metal stockpiles perilously low. This is Bloomberg News via mining.com. The London Metal Exchange will enter 2023 with the smallest available warehouse stockpiles in at least 25 years setting the stage for future squeezes and spikes if demand turns out stronger than expected. Well, a lot of people are predicting a commodities run this year. Available inventories of the six main metals traded on the LME plunged by two-thirds in 2022, with aluminum's 72% decline accounting for the bulk of the drop, while zinc shrank by 90%. Collectively, inventories not already marked for withdrawal hit the lowest level in data going back to 1997 on Thursday and finished the year only fractionally higher. And when you look at the chart, it's a little shocking, to be perfectly honest. They have everything like aluminum, copper, nickel, zinc, lead, and tin and measured in tons. And at the peak from 2010 to 2014, it was at 6 million tons. It looks like it's at 0.4 million tons. It's a little concerning. While most of the main metal never sees the inside of an LME warehouse, exchange inventory levels are important because every short seller who holds a contract to expiry must deliver physical metal registered in an LME warehouse. The LME has introduced new rules to allow deferral to prevent future squeezes, but the exemptions come with costly fees. The tight stockpiles also reflect a tension that has gripped metal markets for much of the year. For much of this year, between constrained supplies on the one hand and worries about weakening demand due to recessionary threats in the world's key economies on the other. For traders on the LME, the dwindling inventories represent another in a litany of headaches following one of the most dramatic years in the exchange's 145-year history. The LME is facing regulatory probes and lawsuits over its actions during a runaway short squeeze in the nickel market in March. Heading into 2023, a key debate across metals markets is whether a worldwide downturn in industrial activity and rebounding supply will help to replenish the industry's threadbare reserves, while China's recent reopening from COVID lockdowns adds further uncertainty. 
Wow. And you look at the Goldman Sachs copper supply demand balance, and it is looking like it's going to get pretty dramatic by 2025 here. So anyways, very interesting story on mining.com. Continuing on, U.S. Treasury signals opening for foreign car makers on EV subsidy. Also Bloomberg News via mining.com, U.S. Treasury Department signaled some imported cars will qualify for EV tax credits in the Inflation Reduction Act, a move that could assuage Asian and European allies' concerns about the sweeping climate legislation. The Treasury sketched out its interpretation of content requirement for EV tax credits Thursday while delaying final rules until March so officials have more time to address the complexities of the law. In a list of frequently asked questions, Treasury officials indicated that imported EVs can qualify for a consumer tax credit of up to $7,500 through a commercial vehicle clause in the law by leasing them. That rule will help foreign car makers like Hyundai Motor Company, which have complained that their electric models were excluded from the subsidy because they don't currently manufacture them in North America. Making leased cars eligible as commercial vehicles triggered an immediate and angry response from West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin. Manchin criticized the Treasury's interpretation and urged officials to pause implementation of both the commercial and consumer electric vehicle tax credits until the department issued, quote, the appropriate guidance. And he continued that the interpretation, quote, bends to the desires of the companies looking for loopholes and is clearly inconsistent with the intent of the law. So interesting little loophole there. I guess that's how it works in Washington. So Panama and First Quantum have been going head-to-head here for a while. And now Panama's president says final contract to First Quantum has been presented. This is Reuters via mining.com. Panama's president, Laurentino Cortizo, said on Monday the government has presented Canadian miner First Quantum Minerals a final contract to regulate operations. Cortizo, during a speech to the nation vowed to abide by the Constitution in the negotiations and to establish a, quote, fair relationship between the parties. The two sides are at odds over such issues as contract stability and the government's plan to increase annual royalties to $375 million, which has been at the forefront of discussions. Crispiano Adames, president of the country's National Assembly, said during a separate speech, he had proposed a new mining code to avoid the needs of Panama being put behind those of multinational companies. Continuing on, Antofagasta's Las Palambres mine in Chile hit by blockade. This is also Reuters via mining.com. Antofagasta said on Thursday access to its Las Palambres operation in Chile's Coquimbo region is being blocked by a small group of people without connection to any specific incident or situation. The miner added it had seen no material impact on production, but works on the mine's development has been reduced due to the blockade. The company added the people were requesting compensation to clear access with transport of supplies and personnel to the mine site affected. So more turmoil in Chile. And I thought this was just an interesting headline. Rusal, the Russian aluminum maker, eyes rising demand for low carbon aluminum in China. So that was kind of interesting. And continuing on, two B2 gold workers dead after robbery in Mali. This is on the Northern Miner, and this is by a staff writer. Two employees of B2 Gold in Mali were killed Thursday when their bus was attacked in an armed robbery. The miner says, I mean, it's always my first question with miners in Mali is security. How is security? The incident occurred when the bus under police escort was transporting workers from the Fakola gold mine to Bamako, the capital of the West African country. 
They came upon a robbery in progress about 75 kilometers west of the city, the company said in a statement. And we have a quote from B2 Gold. Security forces accompanying the bus transport supported the safety of B2 Gold personnel, but unfortunately the incident resulted in the death of two employees. Initial reports indicate all other employees on the bus have been safely accounted for and are being transported to Bamako for assistance. The miner said operations at Fakola weren't affected and the incident wasn't linked to terrorism. And continuing on, Copper Mountain shuts BC mine after ransomware attack. It's by Colin McClellan at the Northern Miner. Copper Mountain Mining has shut its mine in southern British Columbia as it works with authorities to repel a ransomware attack. The shutdown is a preventative measure as Copper Mountain assesses the extent of the attack on its system at the mine and its corporate offices in Vancouver. The company said in a news release on Thursday, There was no immediate word on damage, any computer systems held hostage, the identity of the attackers or dollar amounts they sought. And Copper Mountain said in a press release, quote, The company has isolated operations, switched to manual processes where possible, and the mill has been preventatively shut down to determine the effect on its control system, end quote. So this is clearly becoming more and more of an issue, as we have been warned by many experts in the field just at the Canadian Mining Symposium actually last month. Space rock yields mysterious minerals. This is also by a staff writer. A team of researchers has discovered at least two minerals never before seen on Earth in a 15-ton meteorite found in Somalia, the ninth largest meteorite ever found. The two minerals, with a potential third mineral under consideration, came from a single 70-gram piece that was sent to the University of Alberta for classification. And we have a quote from Chris Hurd, curator of the U of A's meteorite collection, who said in a statement, quote, Whenever you find a new mineral, it means that the geological conditions, the chemistry of the rock, was different than what's been found before. That's what makes this exciting. In this particular meteorite, you have two officially described minerals that are new to science. You can read the whole story on northernminer.com. And finally, CPM Group sees sharp rise for gold, but not until 2024. So Jeffrey Christian weighs in on the Northern Miner with an outlook. In 2023, he sees inflation will continue lower. Interest rates are likely to rise, at least through the first quarter of 2023, before plateauing. Rates are likely to start declining towards the end of 2023 as recessionary pressure increases. And three, a recession is coming. And he also says, while many gold bugs have whined all through 2022 that gold prices were low, the reality is that the gold price is heading to a record annual average high around $1,804 per ounce. Yeah, so that was interesting. He did mention that the last time he was on the program, that according to the annual average, gold is at a record price. And investors are buying gold, central banks are buying gold, and mine production and total supply have been relatively flat while jewelry demand has risen. So you can read the whole thing on northernminer.com. Those are your news stories. And now let's take a look at metal prices. Turning to metal prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on January 3rd, gold is trading at $1,839.32 per ounce. That is $29 higher than last week. Silver is trading at $24.39 per ounce. 
That is 24 cents higher than last week. Platinum is trading at $1,082.49 per ounce. That is $52 higher than last week. And palladium is trading at $1,794.78 per ounce. That is $15 higher than last week. Turning to our industrial metal, copper is trading three cents higher at $3.80 per pound. Aluminum is trading a penny higher at $1.07 per pound. Lead is also trading three cents higher at $1.06 per pound. And nickel is also trading higher at $13.80 per pound. That is 71 cents higher than last week. Tin is also higher at $11.25 per pound. That is 39 cents higher than last week. And cobalt is unchanged at $23.25 per pound. And zinc is two cents higher at $1.37 per pound. So almost across the board, metals are higher. And our buoyant prices from last week are more buoyant this week. So is this a harbinger of a good year ahead in metal prices? We shall see, but it is getting off to a very good start for what many people think will be a good year in the metals. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Phil Baker, president and CEO of Hecla Mining Company, at the Canadian Mining Symposium last month in London, England, Hecla Mining Company is a 130-year-old company, and it's the United States' largest silver producer, mining over 40% of that country's silver. As you'll learn from this interview, it also soon, after picking up Alexco's property in the Yukon, will also be producing about 40% of Canada's silver. Phil has been with the company for almost 20 years as CEO, and it's a fascinating interview that he gives with Andrew Cheadle, who has worked with the Northern Miner at many of our events, and he is Chief Operating Officer and Director at TRX Gold Corporation. It's a fascinating interview on where we are with the silver market, which many people are excited about. I hope you enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side. I started with Hecla, it was two years after the peak in demand for silver for photographic purposes. And that had grown from 1901 to that peak. And I actually came to London in 2002 and I met with the money manager, Ian Henderson, with JP Morgan, and he said, I'm not going to invest in your company unless you get rid of those silver assets because silver's going to zero and you should double down on your assets in Venezuela. And I, and I said, you're not going to invest in, in Hecla. And so what we believed then, I mean, in fairness to Ian, he recognized that the photographic demand for silver had, had passed. So, you know, hats off to him. What he didn't recognize, nor did anyone else, was this, uh, this growing industrial demand. Um, and that demand has grown from just electronics to really energy. And so we're in a new place for silver, a place, you know, you'd have to go back to 1901 to be in a similar place where you have this new demand for silver, and it's really about photovoltaics. So you're very positive on, on solar, and that's so, uh, solar panels in particular? Yeah, look, j just a little bit of background on, on the silver market. 
On the, the demand side for silver, the demand is 1.2 billion ounces of silver annually. That's grown a couple of hundred million ounces over what the average has been over the last 10 years. That demand is about 12%, call it 120 to 100, 110 to 120 million ounces for photovoltaic. That is on an extraordinary growth path. Then you have the demand that's coming out of India that has reached the levels that it was pre-pandemic. It was a little bit of a concern because that demand had fallen off so dramatically. And it's you know, demand that's for silver jewelry, silverware, all of that. That has, in fact, it's really the strongest that's ever been. So you now have a base demand for silver and then this growth that happens from the photovoltaics. So that's the demand side of things. On the supply side, you've got a market that's about 800 million ounces of silver that is mined. Another couple of hundred million ounces of silver that is recycled. And so you got a shortfall of a couple of hundred million ounces. And that deficit, of course, is coming in, out of above ground stocks. And silver, unlike other metals, you're never going to run out of it. There's lots of silver on the, on the surface, but it's got to be extracted from people, which maybe is harder than extracting it from the ground when you have a robust market and when you have the fundamentals that you have for, for silver. So, you know, the outlook that I have is, don't know if it's tomorrow, don't know if it's Five years from now, and as far as Heck was concerned with our, our long history and the quality of our assets, it doesn't matter when it's going to happen, but we know that when it does, our share price will move dramatically along with the, the silver price. Yeah. That's why I'm so passionate about it. I can sense it. It's great. And Heckler itself is producing about 40% of the United States silver. Yeah, that's right. 40%. And it's probably going to grow to about 50% right. over the course of the next couple of years as one of our mines, the Lucky Friday mine, continues to grow its production. So it's a mine that's been in existence for 80 years, yeah. and we're gonna actually produce 60% more than it's ever produced before. Yeah. So I wanted to move on to the assets of uh, Heckler. You've got mines in the United States, you've got mines in Canada. Yeah, that's right. Let me talk about the assets in the United States, and then, uh, and then I'll go to Canada, you know, the reason uh, that we were invited to participate in this, which I'm, again, I'm very pleased that we're here. In the United States, we have two operating mines. We have Greens Creek Mine, which has produced, since 1987, 330 million ounces of silver. I heard John McCluskey's presentation, and like John's description of Mulatto's, people's description of Greens Creek is, okay, it's got a decade left. Well, that's been true since 1987. Today, we've got about another decade left. Of course, we'll continue to explore there. And it, of course, is the United States' largest silver mine. It produces 10 million ounces of silver. It also allows Hecla to be the third largest producer of zinc in the United States. Produces lead as well, and, and I'll talk more about, about the Lucky Friday, but with the Lucky Friday, we're the third largest producer of lead. And then Greens Creek also produces about 50,000 ounces of gold. So it, as, as one analyst said to me uh, years back, he said, Greens Creek, besides uranium, Greens Creek is the highest valued rock on the planet. 
because you got these four metals that it produces. And it's a, you know, it's a, it's a gift that keeps, keeps giving as, as John described one of his assets. Since we became the sole operator, until 2008, Rio Tinto was the operator. We were the joint venture partner. Since that time, it's, it's generated about 1.2 billion of free cash flow. And it's continuing to, to grow and expand. And then you have the Lucky Friday mine. As I said, an 80-year-old mine, a mine that on average produced about two and a half to three million ounces a year over the course of its 80 years. And it's quite deep. It's two miles below the surface. So it's a mine that is, is seismically active. And that energy, that seismic energy, is generated because of the blasting that we do underground. That's the cause of that, that seismicity. And what we have found, or what we've been working on for the past decade, is, okay, well, how do we manage this seismicity? And we tried a bunch of different ways. You might have heard a few years ago, we were looking at mechanically mining the rock and trying to take out basically a rock at a time and not put energy into the rock. Well, in that process, we actually discovered another way of doing it, which is basically a big blast, where we're blasting 10,000 times the amount of material, the amount of explosives at one time, which creates a huge amount of energy, and that huge amount of energy gets released simultaneously with the blast. And so as a result of that, this mine is going to go from an 800-ton-a-day operation, it's a very high grade, to 1,200 tons, and I suspect we'll eventually get to 1,600 tons. So as we go deeper, the grade goes up, and with our new mining method, the production is actually going up. And Phil, before we get to the Canadian mines, let's just take a, a quick tangent down the uh, road of uh, innovation. You know, when I was reading about Heckler, you... you You've been doing a lot of innovation in your mining, not just what you've talked about here at this mine. Um, I'd like you to talk a little bit about that. But also, I was quite struck, you know, you're, you're from a financial background, and yet you're the champion, it would seem, of innovation in your company. Yeah, what we're convinced of is that you need to have large land packages, you need to have land packages that have the potential to have long-lived operations. And if you have that, then you have the potential to take innovation and create true value for shareholders where you are being more productive. And so been very much focused on that my whole career. I, you know, my early days with Battle Mountain, we, uh, I guess, mid-career at Battle Mountain, we had an interest in the Hemlo camp. And I showed up at the Hemlo camp and I was shocked at the wasted capital, you know, and the lack of productivity from seeing three head frames within one mile of one another on the same deposit. So ever since that time, my focus as an executive has been how do we make our minds more productive to create real value for shareholders and not just be a company who creates value because the share, you know, we're leveraged to the, to the, the metals price. We're creating value because we're being more productive. So I, I, it's, it's been something that we've focused on the whole time I've been at Heckler. So you, you encourage your engineers to well, look, speak out? We're, we're, and we're able to fail, right? So if, if you take our mechanical mining foray that we did, you might look at the end of it and say, well, geez, you're not operating that, so that was a failure. Well, and I look at it and go, yeah, it's just like an exploration project. We go, we invest in it, we see if we can make this into something that will work, but if it doesn't, 
we're going to learn from it. We're going to actually improve our operation. And that's, that's literally what's happened with all of the innovation that we've done where you can, you either, we've either identified something that's additive or we can still see some potential of it. You know, ore sorting is another thing that we've done. You know, we've had, had ore sorting technology and what we're finding is with that technology, it worked. It was good for the four years that we used it. We've got issues with the amount of fines that are created. So is it going to have long legs? Don't know, but they're improving that technology. And I'm optimistic that we will eventually figure out how to make it not just a four or five year sort of project, but a multi-decade. So, so you provide the space, yeah, the expectations yeah. and deployment of capital sensibly. Absolutely. Let's go back to the mines. Uh, let's go across the sure. border to, to Canada. So, so look, in, uh, early in my career at, at Hecla, the comment was made that we were the best miners in the world. And I you know, challenged that. As a, not a, since I'm not a miner, it was kind of easy for me to, to challenge it. And I said, look, there's lots of good expertise in Canada. So f frankly, we went to the Abitibi in part to learn. And you know, part of what happened was, uh, was that we came to uh, uh, Orzon and the Casabrardi mine, and we said, this is a mine that fits, fits Hecla. And it's a gold mine, which we like because we need the diversification for silver. If you, if you look at the silver price compared to the gold price, it's been depressed relative to the level of the gold price. And you can tell that from the gold-silver ratio. Um, so we were getting more revenue, more cash flow from gold on a relative basis than, than to silver. So that was one of the reasons for doing it, the expertise that we were able to, to extract. And then thirdly, we produce a Doré bar, while at all of our other mines we produce concentrates. And with all due respect to my smelter friends, we feel like they take too much of, of the value, and so it gives us some diversification from the smelters. Yeah. So for you, you talked about expertise, which is, again, a lovely way to talk about people. And also, I'm from a mining background on the mines, and mines work because of the people. Right. And I know you're very passionate, and I would just like to say to the audience, um, when I read your annual statements and, and your particular comments, it's clearly written in an original voice, a personal voice, which I have never seen before. Normally it's all corporate speak. But you've spoken from your heart, so people are clearly important to you. Do you want to just elaborate a little bit uh, on that? Well, you know, look, at the end of the day, the mines don't happen because of the quality of the mines. They happen because of the quality of the people. You know, Greens Creek from 1987 to 1997 consumed a half a billion dollars of capital. If it were not for the people that, and, and the grade, the grade of the mine was two and a half times the grade we have today. If it wasn't for the, the people that figured out how to make that mine work, Greens Creek would have shut down a long, long time ago. So very much focused on people, and you know, we're the, when people ask me what's our largest challenge, the challenge is, We've got a generation that's retiring, and we're going to have to have a new generation that takes leadership. And so we're trying to figure out, okay, how do we give those people the opportunity to be in a position to be successful when they're the leaders of the, uh, of the organization? So you, you, you've got these mines that are decades old. They're clearly communities. Yep. Are you, are you saying that the next generation is not following in the family footsteps? Or? No, that's still yeah. happening, still happening. But, you know, look, we have more people. 
we we have become more productive. Lucky Friday, I, you know, I mentioned the, the increase in the tons. Greens Creek, it's about 20%, maybe 30% more tons being mined there. So you need more, more pe yeah. even with the productivity, you need more people. And, uh, you know, we've got employees. We, we just celebrated one family that's had a family member that's been an employee of the company for 100 years, which we thought was just an amazing thing, Con continuous. We've got others that have been 100 years, but they've had some gaps. So very much focused on giving these people the opportunity yeah. to make these minds a success. Yeah, well, that's crucially important about the people. And despite uh, to the community there, you, you're also part of the community acceptance, and in today's world is your local community, is societal acceptance. You've been passionate about that as well, well ahead of the curve in terms of some reclamation work, what, 20, 30 years ago? Absolutely. You know, John made the, uh, made the, the comment that the mining industry is actually better than what people give it credit for, and it's been better a long time. Because like him, you go back to the 80s, and what was the, what was the focus? It was on environmental. It was on dealing with the local communities. And, you know, you look at where our operations are. We're the largest private employer in those communities. We are the school board members. We're the umpires at the baseball games. We're, we, we are really in the fabric of the community. So I, the, the whole ESG thing is is really kind of late to the party. This is what the mining industry in general has been doing for a long time, and, and certainly specifically Hecla. You wouldn't survive as long as we have in these places if you weren't. And also, coming back to annual reports, you're very transparent in terms of demographics, age, gender, indigenous. Yeah, uh, yeah. More on that. Yeah. So, look, one of the things that we struggle with is trying to have more diversity in the in in our company because some of the places that we live and where our employees are, it's not very diverse. Um, it just it just didn't. And, and so that's really problematic. But we are having new programs in order to try to bring you know, new people in and try to increase the diversity of the, of the company. Yeah. And can you relate that to the future of mining in the United States and Canada? I've been doing this for a while, and I'm excited about doing it longer because this is the, the industry is the best position that it's been in my career. You now have an industry that you know, particularly you know, metals, copper, and, you know, these, these metals that are needed for energy, that's in the place that oil was in, you know, 100 years ago. You think about the, the role that oil has played. So just a tremendous time to be in, in the mining business. I do want to talk about Kino, our Please newest go ahead. Yep. asset. So we also have another Canadian asset, and this asset is going to allow Hecla to be the largest silver producer in Canada. We will... When this thing is in full production in 24, we will produce roughly 40% of all the silver mined in, in Canada. And, you know, I can't emphasize uh, the importance of the jurisdiction that you're in in having sustainable, long-lived assets. I, you know, I can, I can tell you that as a result of being in Venezuela, Bolivia, Chile, Papua New Guinea, and a number of other countries. You want to have great deposits, but you want to have those deposits in jurisdictions like the Yukon. This is an asset that we have had our eye on starting in 2007. We approached Alexco at that time 
they went another direction where they did a stream. And unfortunately, the stream was so large that it really choked the company in their ability to, to advance things. But they did work out a deal with the Yukon government, the federal government, to deal with the environmental liabilities, which should be a model for other environmental historic mining areas. It's really a very unique uh, model. And they, they did the exploration. And so over the course of the, the last 15 years, we've watched this, we've been engaged, and when the opportunity came to do a deal that would reduce, or in our case, we eliminated the stream with, with Wheaton, it then makes Keno Hill an 88-square-mile district you know, in a position to be like Greens Creek, like the Lucky Friday, one of these long-lived mines that really will deliver value for Mayo, for the, the Yukon, for generations. That leads me to another question. You're sitting as CEO of a 130-year-old company. What's that like? You think of the history, the legacy? Well, look, there's a responsibility that you have, right? You have, you have all these people that have worked so hard for all these years to advance this company, and now you're on their shoulders, you know, taking it even further forward. And, and so you're you know, you want to make sure you're doing the right thing. You want to make sure that you are building a base that is sustainable. You know, people talk about sustainability, well, 130 years, which, by the way, it's not the oldest silver company. It's the oldest precious metals company. There are some steel, iron ore that are older, but oldest precious metals company in North America as an operator. Pinolas will say they're the oldest, but they weren't an operator until about I don't know, 50, 60 years ago. So, so you have the bragging rights. <laughs> exactly. They're a great company, by the yeah. way. Phil, I mean, you know, all of us are involved in the mining industry, and one of the other things that personally strikes me is that with Heckler, you're, you're big sponsors of the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame, PDAC, and CIM, and so on and so on. Why? Well, look, I recognized um, a number of uh, things that makes Canada a unique place for mining. Number one, Canada is the information leader for the precious metals mining business. Northern Miner being an, an element of that. By the way, I, it just occurred to me to say that just, just now, but it's, it's true. And if you go, when, you, when I go and talk to investors in the United States, and look, 93% of our shareholders are in the United States, and say, where do you get your information? It's always from, you know, Canadian institutions of one sort or, or another. So that's number one. You, you, you guys are the information leaders. So we need to be involved in that. And one of the, one of the things we did in 2007 was we opened our co-headquarters in Vancouver. And we will always have our headquarters in the United States, and I suspect it will always be in Idaho so long as we have operations in the, in the state. But... We knew we needed to be in Canada to be relevant in our, in our industry. And then we decided to support these activities, in, in part because you know, these are great organizations, but also in part because we wanted recognition. We wanted the people that have the information to know something about Hecla. And if you're not there, people aren't going to know. We've only just got a few minutes left, so 130 years have gone by. Where do you see Hecla 130 years hence? <laughs> 
Well, I suspect we will continue to be a silver producer. You know, one of the things I, I failed to mention on the supply side of things with this energy transformation, I was looking at Bloomberg's statistics, and they've said, and this isn't 130 years from now, but they've said, you know, basically 10 years from now, the estimate is that we would have 500 gigawatts of solar-powered energy that would be installed, and it would it'd be a continuous growth. And I did the math, and, and when, you, when you look at how it takes about 670,000 ounces of silver to make a gigawatt of, of solar panels, of solar panel capacity, you look at that, and that implies about 2 billion ounces of silver would be needed over the course of the next decade for just photovoltaics. So when I think about Hecla, I think, okay, 130 years from now, we're going to have this great base of these yep. mines producing this product that the market needs, that our society needs. That's an incredibly compelling story. And I think it's only fair to ask you why should people invest in Hecla now? And just before I do that, I was very struck when I was at, uh, in a discussion at a hotel in actually Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. And I ended up talking with some Boeing managers. And I obviously said I was in the mining industry. And they said, oh, with shareholders in Heckler. It's the first thing they said. So why should other people? Well, look, we have 77,000 shareholders. Not very many are in Canada, so I would inv invite you to own, own shares of, of Heckler. And I would invite you because there is only one company that you get the mine life, the cost, the growth. You know, we're, we're actually the fastest growing silver producer. And you get the, I said mine life, growth, fastest growing. And, you know, when you look at our peers, they have de-emphasized silver. We've been a consistent believer in the importance of silver and will continue to be that. I have to agree. It's a very beautiful metal. Let's leave it at that. Uh, we're pretty much out of time. Sure. And, uh, well, thank you very much. All right. Thanks. Very thank And thank you to Phil Baker for appearing at the Canadian Mining Symposium and to Andrew Cheadle for the wonderful interview. And thank you, dear listener, for tuning in once again. I hope again that you're having a wonderful start to the new year. There's a lot in store coming up in the next few weeks, including interviews with some of the people at AMEBC for their big conference coming up. So lots to look forward to. If you want to help out the podcast, leave us a review at the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care. <laughs>